As you turn to Matthew 6, the last time I was with you in January, we spent that time uh, focusing on our relationship with God through His Word, and today I want us to dig deep in, in the topic of prayer, the Word and prayer, the, the eating and the breathing of our spiritual lives. If you want to grow significantly, if you want to grow in your vibrancy and your relationship with Jesus, you're going to be engaged in the Word and you're going to be engaged in prayer. In fact, I would say there's no way to grow in your vibrancy and your affection with Christ apart from the Word and prayer. There's no other substitute for what God wants to accomplish in our lives that He accomplishes through the Word and through prayer. Paul Miller, in his book, The Praying Life, highly recommend it. He said, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production. But prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, get to work. We're not working, we're used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, cell phones make free time as busy as work. When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis calls the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. And if noise isn't provided for us, we bring our own noise via our phone and earbuds. Dozens of ways that we can talk through this crucial topic, but I hope and pray from this passage this morning in Matthew 6, we'll see the connection between our prayer life and our relationship with God as our Father. It's always been true of God that He's chosen to make Himself known through His Word to His people. And so, of course, we engage in the Word. And it's always been true that we commune with God through prayer as well. He longs for us to pull away from the chaos and be alone with Him in times of prayer. And He longs for us to bring Him into the chaos through unceasing prayer. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to stand to pray, uh, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Father, we come to You now in prayer, believing that the words spoken from our lips actually enter the very throne room of heaven, trusting that because You are our Father, You desire and long to hear what we call out to You in prayer. We thank You that because of Jesus, we belong in Your presence. We belong in front of You as Your child, speaking what's on our mind and heart and seeking to receive back from You what You have for us. And that's what we want to experience this morning. We, we want to experience the Spirit, the Word, speaking truth to our heart to either bring life where there is no life or bring conviction, challenge, encouragement where we need to grow as your children. And so we ask you to do that for us today because you love us and we're your kids. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that we're focusing on takes place within the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, as I've mentioned before, is the longest recorded teaching of Jesus in one consecutive section, Matthew's, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It takes place early in Jesus' ministry, and it's basically Jesus drawing a distinction clearly between the kingdom that He came to inaugurate and the kingdom of religion that currently existed within the Jewish world in the first century. Here's what the kingdom is like. Here's how the citizens of Jesus' kingdom will live. And you have passages like the Beatitudes, Christians are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city set on a hill can't be hidden, love your enemies, as well as what we call the Lord's Prayer, all found within the Sermon on the Mount, plus many other famous passages. In chapter 6, there is a shift. Remember, the chapters and verses are not original to the, the writings of Scripture. They were added later to help us reference Scripture. But in chapter 6, there's a shift that Jesus makes, introduced by the first verse, it's Matthew 6.1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Part of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show this contrast between Jesus, the religious establishment of the Jewish culture, and the Gentile culture, the pagan culture of the first century. How distinctly do Jesus' followers live from these other two spheres of influence in the first century? And part of this contrast Jesus wants to reveal is in the first 18 verses of chapter 6 and how both of these groups practice what, what we understand worldwide today as three very common religious practices. Giving, praying, fasting. How does giving, praying, and fasting look for the followers of Jesus as compared to the Jewish culture as compared to even the pagans who practice those things. And first thing Jesus says is, don't pray like the hypocrites. Jesus' favorite word for the Jewish religious leaders. How do they pray? Well, they stand in public places and they pray in such a way to be seen and noticed by others. Um, one of the most common reasons I've heard, I've been a pastor for over 17 years, one of the most common reasons I've heard from the unchurched, the dechurched about why they aren't part of a local church is because of the hypocrites in the local church. If you probably have heard it, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a dozen times. You probably have heard it yourself. And if I have a good relationship with this person, I'll usually say, well, there's always room for one more, so why don't you just come, right? And I hope what I'm hoping to say and, and get into is a conversation with them about what a hypocrite truly is. Because the, the way they're defining hypocrites is usually this. Those church people say they are this, but they fail to live up to who they say they are. There's inconsistencies, there's shortcomings, there's sins. Well, guess what? That's the human condition. Every single person, no matter Christian or not, no matter what your code of life is, every single person on the face of the earth fails to live up to who they want to be consistently all the time. We all fall short, right? A hypocrite, as defined by Jesus and understood in the, in the first century, was, is a word that's actually taken from the Greek theater. It was an actor who would be one character to one group of people in the play, then they would put on a mask to be a different character to another group of people. Hypocrisy, as understood by Jesus, was not just failing to be who you say you want to be, but it was someone who intentionally was deceiving, intentionally was going out of their way to fool and trick other people in order to gain an advantage, which is what the Jewish religious leaders did. They took the Old Testament commands of God, 
They added their traditions and their interpretations about how you live out those Old Testament commands. And then they elevated their traditions above the commands of God and put it as a weight on the shoulders of the people. And said, if you don't obey God's law like we say you should obey God's law, you're out of step with God. You're out of favor with God. You're not as good as us. All the while, they have these loopholes for themselves that allow them to get out of obeying all their traditions and commands. It was an amazing system. It would be like a pastor standing up here to you and telling you why you should give sacrificially, generously, cheerfully to the work of the local church while they're barely giving anything, but standing in public talking about how much they give and then shaming and condemning you for not giving like they give. It would be wicked and evil. And that guy would need to go, right? These were the hypocrites of Jesus' day. In prayer, these guys would pray publicly in such a way that they would draw attention to themselves, seeking the applause of men. And what was missing is what Jesus referred to in verse 6. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray... Go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, Jesus is not trying to say that you can only pray privately. That's not okay to pray publicly. Jesus is not making a case against all public prayers. But he is saying if your public prayers aren't flowing from private prayers, then why exactly are you praying publicly? Well, religious people do it to show everyone how amazing they are and to impress other people, so they will applaud them. Jonathan Edwards writes in a sermon about this passage that secret prayer is the only thing that we do as a Christian that is truly secret and no one else knows. He says it's simply for us and God. His point being, if we do all the other aspects of being a Christian except for secret prayer, then everything else we do as a Christian is for show, to be known by others. And without secret prayer, we're more likely to grow in our religiousness than our holiness. That's Edward's take on this. Something to consider. Another wrong way to pray, described by Jesus, is in verse 7. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. The Gentiles were known for their meaningless babbling. Literally, Jesus uses a phrase in this passage that's used nowhere else in any Greek literature that that, that means to say bata. It's just bada, 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 bada. It's just meaningless repetition of a word that has no meaning. The Gentiles would pray like that, Jesus says. It's this a kind of meaningless praying and an attempt to do enough to make God happy and get what you want. It's an attempt to manipulate God. It's coming from a Gentile or pagan perspective, and so it's treating God more like a pagan deity than the triune God who created the heavens and the earth and rules over it. I think it's around 90% of people in the United States say they pray on a regular basis. Every survey I've ever seen about prayer life of Americans, it's Like 90% of Americans pray on a regular basis. It's kind of like religion. Everyone's worshiping someone or something, right? Everyone to some degree comes to the end of themselves and realizes I need someone or something outside of me to help me fix me or fix my life. I can't change me. I can't change my life. So I need to call out to something or someone 
to, to do what I can't do for myself. So really, it's not a question in America of if you pray or not. It's a question of how you pray and how does how you pray reflect who you believe God is. That's really what we're talking about. If someone were to uh, create a theology of God from our prayer lives, then what would our prayer lives reveal about who God is? Would our prayer lives reveal that we are trusting and believing in God as our Father in heaven? Or would our prayer lives reveal that we're more like the first century Jews? We're just praying so people will applaud how great we pray. Or we're just trying to manipulate God and bend Him to our will to grow our kingdom. Some people, you know, is prayer even necessary? Honestly, whatever's going to happen is going to happen already, so why even bother to pray? Does it really even change anything? Does a spirit of cynicism affect your prayers more than a spirit of faith and hope? I'm kind of doing it, but really, I don't really believe anything different is going to happen just because I'm praying. In fact, uh, I usually only pray when I'm around others, so they'll think that I'm a good Christian. But honestly, when I'm alone, I I hardly ever pray. Is prayer more about getting what you want, establishing your kingdom? So we pray to either try and convince God to give us what we want. So if I pray enough, beg enough, show enough sincerity, then maybe He'll give me what I want. Or maybe if I pray enough, God will be impressed with me. If I do enough, maybe God will think I'm really serious and I really love Him and He'll give me what I want. Or maybe we bargain with God. God, if you give me this, I'll live differently. Or maybe we think somehow if we're serious enough and pray enough, we'll put God into our debt. He owes us. God, look at all I do for you. I show up at that building every Sunday, Sunday, Sunday morning, Wednesday night. I teach Sunday school. I work with kids. I lead music. I give. You know how much I've given you, God? So, God, you kind of owe me the things that I'm asking for. Now, none of us would say that. That's awful. Who would actually admit to those things? But does the way we pray reflect that's the attitude of our heart? The path to a vibrant healthy relationship with God through prayer is first to be honest and admit where these attitudes infect our prayer lives. Vibrant spirituality, as we see Jesus reveal even in the Sermon on the Mount, is not about pretending you're okay, hiding the, the insufficiencies in our life, our sins and our flaws and shortcomings. Vibrant spirituality is getting it all on the table and letting God deal with it being honest and authentic about where we struggle. That's vibrant spirituality. For me, I I don't pray enough in secret. I'll tell you that. It's been a constant battle my entire Christian life. I came to know Jesus in, in 92, so almost 30 years, 28 years of knowing Christ in a saving relationship. And I don't pray enough uh, in private. There's seasons where I do it better than other seasons, but never to the depth of consistency that I really long to experience this deep ache in my heart like that's who I really want to be I don't pray enough with my wife or for my wife I don't pray enough with my kids or for my kids and and honestly it's a a something I continually struggle with and for me the the depth and consistency of my prayer life is one of the best indicators of where I'm at spiritually when it's consistent and deep man I'm I'm walking with Jesus in really close ways it's good Reading the Bible is pretty easy. Like, I can do Bible reading plans, no problem. 
But prayer is where I really show if the rubber meets the road. If I'm really experiencing the sweetness of walking with Jesus. But that's me. What about you? Can, can you be honest this morning with God about where you're at in your prayer life and where you struggle? How about we get honest with God today and admit to how we've allowed our prayer life to become maybe an outward religious act only, or how we've used prayer to try and manipulate God and control our lives, or maybe to try and impress others? What should instead be driving our prayer life? Three things from this passage. Our prayer lives should flow out of our relationship with God our Father. Our prayer lives should seek communion with Him as primary, and our prayer lives should be driven by our desperate dependence on Him for all we need. And I'll walk through the three of those things. Number one, our prayer lives should flow from our relationship with our Father. This is pretty obvious from the passage because Jesus keeps referring to God as our Father. It's just inherent in how Jesus talks about the relationship of His people with God. Praying in, se- pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't pray empty words like the Gentiles. Why? Because your Father knows what you need before you ask. And then He follows that up beginning in verse 9 with what we call the Lord's Prayer. And the very first two words of the Lord's Prayer are our Father who art in heaven. Now you may already know this, but the way Jesus referred to God as Father was revolutionary in His day. No one spoke of God with this level of intimacy. In the language of our day, it would be the same as referring to God as Dad. And, 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 you know, hey Dad, thanks Dad. The God of the Old Testament, the God in the minds of the Jews was this big, distant, unapproachable God. He's the God who's shaking Mount Sinai. He's the God who's the fire in the bush that's not consuming the bush. Moses had to take off his shoes because he's on holy ground. He's the God who's parting the Red Sea. He's the God who's calling all things into existence with the word of His mouth. The God who parted the seas and sent down fire from heaven. He's not the God you hop into His lap with or grab His hand and walk side by side with or lay on the couch and cuddle with. He's God. He's not Dad. And Jesus comes along and essentially says, oh, He's, he's Dad too. All through the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as Father, Dad. Abba. Revolutionary. You see this tension held perfectly in the opening phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. He is occupying heaven. He is occupying the universe. In fact, holding the universe in His hand. He is this big, transcendent God, but He is also our Father. In the history of the church, we've often struggled to maintain that tension called the transcendence of God or the eminence of God. Transcendence, the otherness of God. He's not like us. Eminence, He's close and near. We often, in the history of the church, will swing the pendulum from one extreme to the other trying to get it right. And the proper posture is both. The God who created and holds the universe together by the word of His hand, the word of his mouth, has come near and we belong as his kids. Always. Why? How is that possible? Because of the one time in the Gospels Jesus did not refer to God as Father. On the cross when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one time in the Gospels when Jesus took on the sins of humanity and His Father had to look away. 
because Jesus was bearing the weight of all of our sins. And Jesus, sacrificing Himself for our sinfulness, being the mediator between God our Father and humanity, Jesus doing everything necessary for us to have salvation, Jesus made a way for us, the enemies of God, to be reconciled back to the God who created us. For us, the enemies of God, to be fully adopted into the family of God so that He would be our Father and Jesus our brother. It's possible for us to call God our Father, to believe that our words belong in His throne room, in His ear, because Jesus did everything necessary to make that possible. He suffered for our sins. He rose from the dead so that we could be fully loved, dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. So we have access and we belong because of Jesus. You see, oftentimes we stay distant in our prayers because of sin. We see our sinfulness and we don't think we belong in the presence of our Father in heaven. We see our sinfulness and we think that we have to clean ourselves up before we can come back. We see our sinfulness and our failures and all we feel is disappointment because frankly, that's how people treat us when we let them down. They're disappointed in us. They're ashamed of us. But your Father in heaven does not treat you like that. He doesn't treat you like a sinful human being because He's not a sinful human being. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth, who's also your Father. He's not saying, do these things, clean yourself up, and then come back. Live perfectly for a few days, and then you can come home. He doesn't say that. He is the Father in Luke 15, the Father of the prodigal, who's scanning the horizon day by day, waiting for a glimpse of His Son in the distance. And He's not waiting for the Son to come to Him. He's hiking up His robe and running to His Son to embrace Him, to say, my Son who is dead is now alive. My Son who has been lost is now found. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's break out the banquet table. We're going to have a party. Because my son has come home. My daughter has come home. In whatever way your sinfulness is keeping you from intimacy with your Father in heaven, come back to Him today. He's coming after you. And He's not going to stop coming after you until you return. That's how He wants you. You see, talking about prayer in a room full of people who profess to know Jesus is a recipe for guilt and shame because we all stink at it. Honestly, there's nobody in this room who thinks, my prayer life can't get any better. It's as good as it's ever going to be. We know. But, but what I'm encouraging you to do is don't hide in guilt or shame or pretend it's not that bad or try to make empty promises to yourself like, okay, I got it. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go buy a prayer journal. I'm going to download a prayer app. I'm going to wake up at 3 a.m. and pray to 6 a.m. And I'm going to do different this week as a praying Christian. Don't don't do those things. Those things could be good and helpful, but first, see yourself accurately as a broken mess. See yourself accurately as a broken mess, but also a dearly loved child of your Father in Heaven. And no one loves you more than Him, and no one's coming after you more than Him, and no one's trying to do more for you to bring you along more than Him. And be okay where you're at, and let Him transform your heart. Let Him transform your mind. Let Him change you from the inside out. It's only in His presence you can be cleansed. It's only in His presence you can be empowered to enjoy Him and know Him more through prayer. 
It's only when you see yourself accurately can you really begin to live as a son and daughter of your Father in heaven. So no more games. Let's quit pretending. Let's be real. Secondly, see that what your Father desires in prayer more than anything else is for you to have communion with Him. See that what your Father desires in prayer more than anything else is communion with Him. Verses 5 and 6, everyone gets an award. It's like Little League, participation trophies. Everybody gets a trophy, right? You lose all your games in Little League, and you're going to get a trophy just like the winners are going to get a trophy. Everyone gets an award in verses 5 and 6. For those who pray in public, only for the purpose of being applauded by men, you'll get that. They'll be impressed with you. It, it honestly doesn't take a whole lot to impress most people. If you can stand up and put two words together and pray in public, people will, man, that's a good prayer. Thank you so much. If that's why you're doing it, you'll get it. But for those who desire communion with God for the sake of communion with God that no one else knows about, there is also a reward. He says there in verse 6, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And what is the reward? You get Him. Communion with Him. You see this in other passages. Later in chapter 7, again, the Sermon on the Mount, you see the connection between the fatherhood of God and our prayers Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, what are good gifts? Well, it's, it's undefined in the Gospel of Matthew. You don't really know what he means by good gifts, except it comes from your Father in heaven. But in Luke's account of this same teaching, he adds an interesting detail. Luke eleven thirteen says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What is the greatest gift in the entire universe that God can give? Himself. There is no one better. There is nothing better than God. He is the greatest gift that can be given to anyone. And that is the greatest enjoyment in prayer is to simply be with God and enjoy Him. Enjoy communion with God. you got people in your life that you love to be with, right? Your spouse, children, grandchildren, family members, friends. Like when you have it on your calendar to get together with this person or maybe you have a date night with your wife or in our case, we get all the kids in the bed and we lock the teenagers in their room and hide from them and we get to be alone together or go out to eat together. Like I can't wait for those opportunities to be with this person, to be in a communion, to enjoy the fellowship of this person. You leave it, you're like, man, it's so much fun being with them. I wish we could spend more time like that. And the greatest experience that we can have in all of this is with the God who created us, our Father in heaven. And that is the ultimate reward of prayer. This marked Jesus' ministry. All He did, all He had to do, busyness constant, things pressing on Him constantly. But you see, throughout the Gospels, this withdrawal away from others to be alone with His Father. Simply for communion. Back to Matthew 6. This is what's amazing. If that is what is driving your secret prayer life, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 7, your Father 
in heaven will reward you. He will do it. You want an answer to prayer? Seek to spend time alone with your father for the sake of being with your father. And God says, you will be rewarded. You will get me. You want me? You get me. Isn't that incredible? Um, think about all the things that keep us from secret prayer with our Father in heaven. Does any of that c- compare to this time with the God of the universe? Yeah, you know, I could wake up earlier, but, you know, I, I like to stay up late and watch Netflix for a couple more episodes of this show I've already watched 17 times. You know, it's so good the 17th time through. So that's kind of what's keeping me going to bed early enough to wake up early. Or, you know, another three or four more snoozes under the warm covers in my cold house. You know, that's really, really nice. It's hard to get out of my warm bed on a cold morning to spend time with my father. And you could add any number of things to that. Sports center, exercise, work. Any number of other things that we certainly make sure to do every day. Things that we say, oh, oh, this, this is definitely going to happen in my day. Time in secret with my Father in heaven, you know, if I get to it, he'll be there tomorrow. I mean, what am I really missing out on? Right? I love being married to my wife, Jennifer. We strive to be intentional with our time and, and with uh, all the kids in our house. Uh, it requires more and more intentionality than ever before. And sometimes we're good about date nights. You know, we strive for at least once a month. We can pull away and just be alone for a movie or a, a night out to eat. And uh, sometimes we're good about telling the teenagers, hey, you guys hang out together tonight. Me and mom are going to hang out together and we kind of separate in our house. Uh, or early, if we can get up early before the littles get up, early morning coffee is really nice. Like we really look forward to those. Saturday mornings, kind of our time. We strive to do that. But but when we get those times and those times are intentional, they're always good. But we we miss them. And what happens when you're missing those times with your spouse? They start adding up, and all of a sudden, the the connection, the intimacy between you and her, isn't what it was. And all of a sudden, there's a little bit more conflict. There's a little bit more jumping to conclusions, a little bit more assuming, a hurt feelings get hurt a little quicker, tension begins to grow, and then what do me and Jennifer say to each other? And we, we gotta pull away. We need some time alone to reconnect and to grow in intimacy and fellowship with, with each other. So missing time with my wife, intimate times with my wife to have conversation and so forth doesn't make us not married. We don't lose our marriage. It's the same thing with our Father in Heaven. Missing out on time with your Father in Heaven doesn't get you kicked out of the family. But you're missing the sweetness and the joy and the fellowship and the closeness. And eventually, over time, a barrier will build up and sins will increase and hardness of heart will increase. You can only know so much, you can only work so much, you can only watch so much sports, you can only watch or read so much TV or books But your Father in heaven who knows everything and created all things is inviting us to know Him and enjoy Him and love Him. And time with Him is inexhaustible. You never get enough of Him. It never gets old or tired or stale. You never 
dive to the, the depths of Him and, and, and can't discover more about who He is and who you are in Him. What do you really desire? Who do you really desire in life? You even see a relationship between communion with God as the purpose of praying and, and asking in the Lord's Prayer. Before we ever ask for our daily bread, before we ever ask the Lord not to lead us into temptation, uh, uh, not to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, before we ever confess our sins and ask forgiveness, the Lord's Prayer starts off with communion with God our Father. Seeing Him for who He is and focusing on that reality before confessing our needs. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Let Your name be honored on all the earth. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me see and enjoy and focus on You before we ever get to me. Prayer is many things, but it must be communion with Your Father if it is to be anything else. It has to be at least that. Thirdly, lastly, See that prayer is essentially desperate dependence on God our Father. In its essence, prayer is desperate dependence on God our Father. Communion with God, desperate dependence on God our Father. Again, verse 8, in contrast to the babbling Gentiles who think they can control or impress God with their many words, Jesus says in verse 8, don't be like them. Why? Because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Now, this isn't saying that we shouldn't pray the same things over and over or persist in prayer. In fact, in Luke 11 and Luke 18, Jesus paints a picture of pestering God with our prayers in an attempt to show us how to pray and not give up. Luke 11, you have the story about the, the guy who has a visitor show up at his house and he doesn't have anything to feed him. He's knocking on his neighbor's house in the middle of the night. And Jesus says, your neighbor will eventually get up and help you out and provide food for your neighbor even though he's kind of frustrated that you're knocking on his door in the middle of the night, he eventually, because you won't stop, will get up and help you out. In a different way, God is eager to help us out when we're asking and seeking and knocking and persisting. He's not like the disgruntled neighbor who eventually helps you out because you're so persistent. God is ready and willing to ask to respond to our asking, seeking, and knocking. In Luke 18, it's the persistent widow before the unrighteous judge. And Jesus specifically says... He's saying this to his disciples in order to teach them how to pray and not give up. This persistent widow asking the judge constantly for justice, eventually this unrighteous judge will eventually give in because she's driving him nuts. God is the opposite of that. He can't wait to respond to our persistence. But we should be persistent in our praying. So Jesus is not saying don't be persistent, constantly seeking, asking, seeking, and knocking. We should be. This isn't so much instruction on the mode of prayer or manner of prayer. This is more about the heart behind our prayers. Are you praying trying to control God or are you praying understanding He is your Father and before you ask Him for anything, He already knows? He already knows. How does that change your approach to Him? How does it change your asking, seeking, and knocking? How does it change your persistence? coming to your Father who already knows what you need. He knows we are weak. He knows we are flawed. He knows we are sinful. He knows we're broken. He knows that we're 100% dependent on Him for every cell in our body to work as He's created it to work. For all of our cells to not all of a sudden start attacking our body and killing it. He knows we're dependent on Him for every heartbeat and every breath, 
Every penny in the bank and retirement account, every millisecond of every day we still live is because He has ordained that we would still be alive on, on February the 16th, 2020. Every hair growing on our body, every calorie of every day we need to be sustained, every molecule of water that refreshes and nourishes our body, all the cones and rods that help us see, all the neurons that are firing billions upon billions of times per minute, all that we need from Him, and He's giving it to us constantly, generously, abundantly, and He knows that we'll need what we'll need for every single second until our very last breath. He knows everything that's coming in our lives. Nothing catches him off guard. He's not surprised. And he's not never lacking in sufficiency to provide what we need. And guess what? He's never wringing his hands worried about how he's going to provide what we need. He's not pacing back and forth. What am I going to do? Here they come again. More prayers. Will I have enough this time? You see the same language later in the sermon. Matthew 6. Another famous passage. Don't be anxious about life, what you'll eat, the birds of the air. They're flying around gathering into barns. Your father's helping provide enough food for the birds of the air. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Don't worry about what you're going to wear. He clothes the grass of the field that's alive today and gone tomorrow. And they're more beautiful than Solomon was clothed in all the array of his clothing. Are you not much more valuable than grass that grows and flowers that are alive today and gone tomorrow? He says in Matthew 6, don't Live your life worried about what you will eat or what you will wear, where you will live. It's the Gentiles who seek after these things. But he says in Matthew 6, but your Father in heaven knows that you need these things. And so that famous verse, verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and your Father will provide all that you need to live out your calling in life by seeking Him and His kingdom. This is our Father. We could go through a a bunch of practical how-tos to a vibrant, healthy prayer life. I can recommend a bunch of books and resources because this has been a struggle in my life, so I've read a lot and strive to learn a lot. But no matter the technique or the strategy, the heart attitude has to be right. In fact, if the heart attitude is right, all the strategies will take care of themselves. We'll figure it out if your heart is right. Do you see that prayer flows from the reality that God is your dad and you are his child? And you are fully loved and you are fully desired by him. Always. Always. And what he desires for you in prayer is more than anything else for you to enjoy him. And when we don't pray, it's often a sign of pride. We would never say this, but we live as though we don't really need him. But it's okay. Because he is here today with his arms open wide, ready to receive you back once again and restore and make you new. We're gonna have it, I'm going to close with a few minutes of just quiet time to pray and give us all space to engage with Dad. But maybe you're like John Wesley, founder of the Methodists, incredibly gifted, incredibly ambitious, getting a lot done, super religious, very active in the local church, gifted, could do a lot. But on a sea voyage back from America to England, The boat that he was on came into a terrible storm and John Wesley was terrified. I don't want to die, he thought. And he noticed the Moravian missionaries. If you don't know about the Moravian missionaries, Google them and and read about them. They were on a boat with him, actively working to help the boat not capsize, but doing it with a peace and a rest that Wesley did not know. 
And that began his journey to what he would call an inner experience, a warming of the heart in which he says he truly came alive in Christ. And all this talk about communion with God as dad, this joy and peace and secret prayer. Maybe this morning you're on the outside looking in and you're like, I I don't really know that. I've never really experienced that. It's never been your desire or experience. And maybe maybe this morning the Spirit is revealing to you that you, you don't know God as Father because you haven't been reconciled back to Him through His Son Jesus by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus for your standing and right standing with God both now and for all of eternity. And maybe the first step toward this intimacy with God is for you to call out to Him during this time of prayer for salvation. I believe I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I'm trusting in Jesus to make me right with God, to forgive me and cleanse me of all of my sins so I can be adopted into the family of God. And your Father in Heaven is here today. The Spirit of God is here today to make your salvation possible. Christian, how often do you sit quiet with the Lord? Use these next few moments well and let it not be an anomaly in your life, but a pattern of your life. Father, we confess how hurried and frazzled, how noisy our lives are that make two minutes of quiet feel so uncomfortable, so long. Father, we thank you that you are who you are. And because of Jesus, we are your children. No matter where we fail in this area of our life, here you are once again wanting to bring us back. You desire to be with us way more than we'll ever desire to be with you. We thank you that you love us with that kind of persistent, constant, steadfast love. So warm our hearts again to the reality of what communion with you looks like, time with you looks like. And help us to seek it out because our hearts are being transformed. Give us wisdom about all the particulars, but more than anything, make us a people who it's evident we love to be with the Lord. We love to be in His presence. We love to enjoy communion with Him. Help us to walk with you like that, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.